Since 2011, Libya has not merely descended into total violence and social fragmentation, but has also come to be dominated by various armed groups with profit from the political turmoil. Think tanks observe that armed groups rely on a wide range of illegal activities and economic practices to finance themselves and co-opt their allies, including corruption, extortion, confiscation of private properties, smuggling of oil refined products, and capital flight to foreign countries. The prevailing narrative argues that these activities have been gradually destroying the country's formal economy. Local armed groups have begun to compensate for the inability of the state to provide resources, services, and most importantly, security to the population. Tripoli, the capital city, has witnessed the emergence of a Mexico-like cartel, where four militias have allied in order to establish the basis for a functioning monopoly of violence. From 2012 to early 2014, the primary source of finance for militias was funds specifically allocated from the Defence and Interior Ministries, which covered the salaries of individual militiamen. By inflating payrolls and operating expenditures, militia leaders and their political allies were able to accumulate wealth and went on to partly reinvest it in heavy weapons and other capital-intensive equipment, thus perpetuating the vicious cycle of violence. However, as state funding contracted, armed groups started to search for alternative sources of funding, becoming embedded in the socio-economic structures. So, that sounds like some sort of bleak alternative future, but that is present-day Libya. When was that released? That's quite interesting. That is a good question. When was that released? Uh, that is from a, uh, a 2020 article. Yeah. So, Story with time. That, welcome to Modern Guild. <laughs> As we mentioned in our previous episode, we're trying something out where we're going to open episodes with little um, little paragraphs or... Um, anecdotes. Anecdotes, maybe monologues, you could say. Uh, which hints at Little ditties, which hint at the, uh, the topic or subject matter somewhat for, uh, to come for the current episode. So if you're with us, thank you for listening once again. We hope that you find some of this enjoyable we're recording on a tuesday morning mm. one day before two days before the inauguration kicks off in the states mm. yes martin luther king day over there keeping the markets yeah. closed yeah much to our dismay but uh, <laughs> we um had a sort of pathetic chat before we started recording about the pain that public holidays in the United States causes us uh, with with the market staying open for a long weekend uh, and not being able to check in on some juicy gains. I mean, at least it's Martin Luther King Day. At, at least it's that and not something fucking... Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah, if it was something else, um, I, don't, I don't know what the public holidays are like over there, yeah. but I'm sure there's like... Just horrible public holidays here. Where you just like sit there. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Grimace at Way the to alienate a third of our audience. Hey, we <laughs> fucking suck. <laughs> We're like, oh, yeah, by the way, public holidays in the US suck. I think there's a merit for like being anti public holidays that keeps, um, you know, high powered entertainment like the stock market closed, <laughs> but also yeah. pro um, not going to work so balance those two out mm -hmm. yeah i think a, an ideal uh, alternative to to this would be like rolling public holidays for one-fifth of the population yeah 
Or like once a fortnight, 10% of the population gets an extra day off. Just like a Sounds good. bank where you can just, because it's kind of fucked up that like everybody has to take the day off, you know? Like it'd be, yeah, it'd be much yeah. nicer to sort of like bank that in your little like um, public holiday wallet uh, yeah yeah your little <laughs> in your uh, allowed ethereum blockchain wallet <laughs> oh god it's so bleak eh? these are the days that you get to own yeah um yeah i love how often our suggestions just sort of derail into weird laws that we would impose <laughs> if we somehow fell into like uh becoming dictators or authoritarian controllers of our own states i mean it's ideally coming at some point I'm like occasionally daydream about that as I walk around. I do, yeah. Yeah. I'd like to be a dictator. Oh, yeah, uh, totally. Especially when I come across like annoying little indignities uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I go about my day, you know? Um, I'm mm. struggling to come up with an example right now. Like just, just shit like, you know, getting fined like 300 bucks if you have a beer in your hand or stuff like that. It's just fucking obnoxious. That is pretty fucking disgusting. That is an indignity, you know. That's that's bullshit. On Saturday night, I went to this rainforest near the Gold Coast in Queensland and went it's like a small hike to this cave called Natural Bridge where there's like a really beautiful waterfall and in this cave there are like glowworms. So, you know, you hike down there in the dark and it's really like quiet and all you can hear is like the rush of the water and the sounds of the rainforest which is like you know pretty serene pretty beautiful you're like you know have a headlamp but you know you're basically just walking through the dark and there's not that many people there because it's late at night and um we were like you know halfway through this small hike we had witnessed some like nice wildlife saw like some frogs and lizards and shit and then we like turned the corner to just find this pack of like 11 teenagers just like completely uh decimating our serenity (laughs) just like screaming and cackling like all with their fucking smartphones out just like taking photos and like watching like tiktoks (laughs) just like standing like across the entire path and we kind of approached them and had to just like weave through them and they smelled of body odor and it was repulsive yeah. and if i was a dictator i would have i would have someone at the entrance to the rainforest issuing permits based on like your <laughs> whether or not you would uh be suitable to uh, occupy space in the rainforest and if you were likely to detract from the serenity then you would not receive a permit that should be fair eh? like you know because that's that's horrible man that's that's what like set off ted kwasinski um well, I mean, it was like a little bit more hardcore because they bowled some of his trees that he liked. Yeah, yeah. But just the destruction of Serenity as a rule. Oh, it's so horrendous, eh? You know, especially yeah. playing TikToks in the middle of a rainforest like that is um, pretty disgusting. That's Yeah, that's like uh, peak dystopia. <laughs> and um, that's what we do at Modern Guild. But luckily for all of us, that is not peak dystopia, but... Something that comes close to peak dystopia is Libya, mm. which we can talk about a little bit. So Hit me with it. Last week, you uh, recommended that I watch the documentary Hypernormalization, which I absolutely went ahead with, and it was fucking outstanding. So thanks mm. for the recommendation. No worries. 
And as I'm sure you recall, like there is some Libya related content in there. Uh, and Libya is like a, a country and a... Can I interject quickly? Yeah, please um, do. What was your opinion of Gaddafi before you watch Hypernormalization? Well, I already knew quite a bit about Gaddafi before okay. Hypernormalization. And I had a largely neutral opinion on him. Uh, I think like prior to watching the doco, I was well aware of the many positive things that he had done. Mm. Um, which actually aren't explored that thoroughly in hypernormalization. They more focus on his sort of like, kind of like semi-celebrity cult figure eccentric status, uh, more than the sort of value that he actually created for Libya and African and Middle Eastern countries more broadly. I Mm. apparently, I don't know if this is true, Yeah, but uh, allegedly had multiple seizures with Gaddafi's doctor who's wow, a ref- this is such a fucking bizarre like like I don't know if this is legit or not but the guy claimed to be Gaddafi's doctor so this during a time yeah, where right. he was like um hanging out pretty intensely with the uh Muslim community up in Auckland uh-huh. and there's a guy who had had refugee status um and come from Libya and was allegedly Gaddafi's doctor according to the bulk of the Muslim community and himself, of course. Yeah. Um, and he was really interesting. Yeah. He was telling me a lot about like uh, the good stuff that Gaddafi's done and, and like, you know, the atrocities that um, he had been accused of, but was largely bullshit. Yeah. You know, and whatnot. And the guys seemed pretty adamant on, I mean, the, the problem is like a lot of that community was like very steeped in conspiracy theories and. Uh, or like anti-Western sentiment. Understandably. Yeah, 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 100%. You know, like, anyway, I don't know entirely where I was going to go with that. But yeah, man, like, it was fucking fascinating to hear. Um, The guy apparently had to, like, escape Libya by the, uh, you know, as fast as possible to get out of there right when the state was collapsing. So, like, he left, like, just post-revolution or, like, as the revolution was happening and the West intervened? Yeah, yeah, as the revolution was happening and just managed to get into New Zealand, you know. Yeah, right. That's um. I don't know anything pretty really about extraordinary, him but uh, yeah, he definitely changed my mind a bit. Um, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, don't be sorry at all. It's um, that's a fucking awesome story. Yeah. So as I as I said, like I Libya is a country that I've been pretty interested in for a long time. Back in 2011, when you know the Arab Spring was happening, I followed all of that really closely um, because you know international politics and political science and whatnot is just something that I'm have been really interested in for my whole life essentially and then you know i've I've followed the sort of the narrative of post-revolution slash intervention libya and then also have have read a lot about gaddafi the character and his his kind of history but hypernormalization did a really good job of sort of illustrating libya as the sort of like fulcrum of this seesaw in a sense of um you know kind of imperialism on one side and i suppose resistance or um i don't want to use the word justice because that's subjective but you know um attempts at justice on the other side so um i went and found a couple of journal articles to read in preparation for the pod which are interesting because they they kind of each represent one side of that kind of ideological seesaw that um libya stands as the center of 
And the first one is by this guy called um, Dirk van der Waal, and it's called After Gaddafi, The Surprising Success of the New Libya. And this one was written in 2012, so only around 18 months, I think, after the fall of Gaddafi. And for the listeners who aren't super familiar with the situation in Libya, I'll give like a brief sort of history uh, off the top of my head, just to catch people up so this all makes a bit more sense. So essentially like Colonel Muammar Gaddafi led a revolution in Libya in I think 1967 to overthrow the king of Libya who had been in power since Libya broke free from the yoke of colonialism in 1950. So there was a period of post-colonial adjustment where Libya had its independence and essentially the king didn't do a good enough job of ruling the country in the view of a lot of people. So Gaddafi led a small coup um, and seized power and implemented a sort of revolutionary socialist regime um, that wasn't strictly socialist in the Soviet sense, but um, it adhered to Gaddafi's own personal sort of political theory, which he called um, the third universal theory or the third way. <clears throat> and he ended up publishing his own manifesto called the Green Book, um, which was eventually circulated in, in schools and um, sort of institutions in Libya. And um, it described a political vision where the state controlled capital, but it was sort of on behalf of the people, if that makes sense. Um, and so there was like a lot of central planning and top-down command, but, but at the same time, direct democracy. So people at like an individual community, tribal or regional level were encouraged to have as much sort of autonomy and say in the governance of their their land and their affairs as they wanted to. So they could essentially, if they wanted, they could sit back and let the state do its thing and they could be appointed a job by the state, go and work in a state-run oil field um, and then live in state housing and receive a state salary and everything would be managed for them. But if they wanted, they could also go about their business and sort of engage in private enterprise to a certain degree, as long as that's what their sort of like community supported. And another thing that Gaddafi was really pro was colonial or neo-colonial resistance. So Libya, like a lot of former colonies in Northern Africa and the Middle East, uh, was oil rich or, and still is. And he realized that like oil could be politicized and turned into a, a weapon um, to resist the imperialism of the West. So when he seized power, he started to um, artificially restrict the production of oil um, and encouraged other countries who were in similar situations to Libya, like um, Algeria and Sudan and Iraq to, to do similar things. So which is a, a large part of what um, led to the oil crisis of 1971 or 72. Can you recall which year that was? No, not mm. at all. I can look it up. <laughs> oh, that's but that's okay. a good we'll, day, um, Rich. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we'll um, give, give our uh, listeners some autonomy and they can fact check it if they want to. Mm. Oh, we can drop a resource in the episode description outlining the oil crisis. So essentially, as well as encouraging countries to to weaponize their oil exports. Gaddafi went a step further and started supporting um, groups who were pushing for radical regime change in former colonies, like in uh, Angola, Chad, 
South Africa, for example, arming militant groups um, and, and funding rebels and think tanks and the publication of material and all that sort of stuff that would build resistance against democratic capitalist governments who were um, either backed and put in place by the West post-independence from their former colonial masters. So as you can imagine, Gaddafi's attempt at supporting these, quote, freedom fighters from his position didn't go down very well with uh, the United States and the United Kingdom and whatnot. So from the sort of mid-70s onwards, they started to directly oppose the Libyan regime through proxy wars in the countries where Libya was supporting resistance movements and also by um, funding groups who were attempting to undermine the Libyan regime on the ground in Libya. So, yeah, you look like you're about to ask a question. Oh, I just, just kind of like him. You know, you hear about that sort of stuff a lot, but when you think about what's actually happening, it's just so fucking mind-blowing to me that the government would step in and, you know, directly fund resistance to another another country's affairs. Yeah. Do you know how hard it is to get funding? (laughs) (laughs) Do you know how hard it is to get someone to believe in your vision? And to have a government step in and directly fund someone fucking up another state um country whatever is just mind-blowing to me eh? yeah it's uh it is mind-blowing like you know it's in complete contravention to international law it throws the idea of sovereignty out the window Mm. like can you imagine if and i mean to an extent this this might happen presently but can you imagine if russia or iran were funneling hundreds of millions of dollars to support a a separatist group in the United States. Like Antifa. Or, <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Antifa receive foreign funding because they're too fucking hopeless. They're useless. Yeah. But, you know... Like um, a capital, capital Hill funded by... Uh, yeah. Could you Brought imagine you by Russia. fucking that, like, that boomer who was on Nancy Pelosi's desk receiving funding from the Kremlin? I just... Yeah. <laughs> not fucking happening man yeah it'd be funny if they did though like that would be mm. um hilarious if they're all you know yeah agents um at, oh well actually funny that we mentioned this because something that i didn't know that was brought up in hypernormalization is um gaddafi's support for um not the black panthers but the nation of islam uh, right. in the United yeah, States, I forgot about which that. i thought was yeah really interesting so yeah, yeah. i mean it, it did happen um but they're like a separatist movement, eh? Nation of Islam. They're like a full-blown segregationist from memory. I think the Nation of Islam... Actually, I don't know enough about them to, to, to say it on the pod. I was going to say that I, I think they wanted to return to Africa. They were... But I, I think I'm thinking of Marcus Garvey. Right. Um, who was maybe not affiliated. So mm. I'm not going to go into that. We can maybe I, try and I'd do that wrong. another time. I'll also clarify that. Um, I know there is a separatist movement and like a black segregationist uh, group. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I thought it was like Nation of Islam, but it might be another group mm. on the fringe. So anyway, from the mid 70s onwards, you had this this proxy war happening between um, Libya and the resistance or freedom movements that it was supporting. And then the, the crushing opposition from the United States and the rest of the West. And it's really interesting to kind of to think about this in the context of what was happening in in Libya as this was going on because 
Gaddafi had um, increased the, the standard of living, and I, I shouldn't just say Gaddafi, you know, his regime had increased the standard of living in Libya um, to be, I think, the most sort of, by most developmental standards, the most successful country in North Africa. He raised the, uh, the life expectancy from 50 to 65. Oil revenue was, I think, reached the point of $160 billion a year, not inflation adjusted. So yeah. like an enormous revenue. He started infrastructure projects, uh, building like a really advanced system of roads to connect the major coastal cities in Libya with the, the tribal regions. And um, in order to try and diversify the economy, also had like a man-made river made uh, going yeah. uh, far south into the Libyan desert. And I, I think in the end... Um, that project didn't prove to be that successful just because of the nature of trying to farm in a desert. It's insanely hard, even if you have water. But nonetheless, he was ambitious and had like a huge level of support amongst the Libyan people. Oh, context as well is like a lot of people probably won't appreciate how important connecting the territories are to the main cities in the Middle East, mm -hmm. because part of why Islam was so successful was it was um, built around uniting uh, the cabal, which is like tribes within the Middle East together Absolutely. under the umbrella of Islam. Uh, because before that, it was just like lots of warring factions for, you know, multiple mm. decades, maybe centuries or whatever. Um, yeah. And that's like kind of like a central part of unity within the Middle East. So you can imagine why so anyone who does that is generally like, you know, in the good books. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that time at the mosque like really, that, really served me well. <laughs> yeah, no, it fucking did, man. And like that's something that I actually appreciate about about Islam and the Middle East, because you know, I, I guess when you talk about the Middle East, you, it's also important to recognize that there are like a lot of minority religions, like Christian groups in Libya, for example, and blah blah blah. But you know, like historically. Um, Society in the Middle East ran on a system of like patronage and tribute and the development and maintenance of uh, tribal loyalties sort of through the uh, relationships between like elders and people of importance and wisdom in the community. So when Gaddafi was developing this physical infrastructure in Libya, it was almost a, uh, a metaphor for the connections that tied the country together. So when the the coastal elites in Libya needed the sort of backing or the approval of the tribal leaders in the regional areas for, for everything to work. And it w was like a reciprocal relationship. So even though Gaddafi sort of ran an authoritarian regime, it was based on the understanding that he had the approval of these um, of the tribes and all of the different groups and everything sort of worked somewhat harmoniously. And there was obviously harsh crackdowns against dissident groups. Um, but it, it's up for debate, I think, whether or not that was an inherent part of his regime or if, or if that was the equivalent first of what you could call teething problems. So like obviously when you uh, rise to power or try and seize power in a coup, assuming your, uh, your motives are pure, there will be things you need to do to consolidate power in order to achieve your ends. Obviously, like if that involves violence and the smiting or wiping out of dissident groups, that's horrible. But I think there would come a point 
where once power is consolidated, that probably doesn't become very necessary, except for in the instances in which these groups are being backed or supported by outside interests, a la the United States, United Kingdom, France, in which it that support for those groups... Did you mean, within what context did you mean Allah? Oh, sorry, not Allah as in God. I mean... <laughs> Um, All right. <laughs> uh, like that of um, <laughs> I was like, oh okay i haven't heard about that yet like yeah allah is the yeah. united states <laughs> <laughs> um yeah fair enough and if you thinking about gaddafi the the regimes cracking down of dissident groups supported by outside interests um the support of those groups has the dual function of destabilizing the country but then also being able to say to the world, look, this authoritarian regime cracks down on dissidents. So you like you delegitimize the regime in the eyes of the world because mm. you see them brutally crushing these groups that you are actually supporting. What a, uh, it's just fucking bullshit spin from the West, though. Eh? Yeah, yeah, sure. absolutely. They could spin that either way if they want. Mm. Um, you know. So post uh, the sort of rapid economic development of Libya leading up to the mid to late 70s, the West started supporting these groups and also imposing crippling economic sanctions, which um, became the foundation for unrest in Libya. Mm. And there, there is a lot of um, sort of episodes that constitute this era, but I'm going to fast forward over them because I think the specificities aren't important to get to the uh, larger point. But essentially, like, inflation started running rampant. There were... Um, sanctions placed on the country to stop the importation of equipment necessary for the production of oil, which started to create a chokehold on their main source of income. Um, governments like the government of Saudi Arabia uh, and Egypt was starting to turn on the Libyans uh, at the behest of the United States. And by the mid-2000s, the country was essentially broken. Uh, unemployment among young people reached, I think, a point of 30%. And then when the sort of powder keg of the Arab Spring exploded in 2010 or early 2011, Libya was, was ripe to go off, essentially. Um, so the Libyan people rose up, claimed that they wanted to overthrow Gaddafi, and then uh, NATO, led by the United States, under the guise of humanitarian intervention, started bombing the shit out of Libya. Yeah. And as Hillary Clinton famously once said, uh, they came, they saw, he died. Gaddafi was brutally dragged out of a car on a highway as his convoy was fleeing to his tribal homeland uh, and he was beaten to death in the middle of the road on social media uh, and his corpse was tied to the back of a fucking... I remember that. Yeah. That was um, right around the time uh, Saddam Hussein was also killed, right? I think it was later, but I mean... Yeah. Same rough period, but say all that to say that was um actually a very long overview that took far too long. Yeah, it's hilarious. This this article going back to by um Dirk van der Waal titled "After Gaddafi: The Surprising Success of the New Libya." Oh <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> is is written in the context of Gaddafi has just been killed. The country has been bombed to shit by um fucking western fighter jets yeah um like you know thousands of airstrikes the the cities are decimated the roads connecting them to regional areas are uh, 
largely destroyed and the entire country has fallen into factionalism and control by militias uh, as I described in that paragraph that we opened this episode with and Dirk van der Waal goes on to explain how promising the future is for Libya now that these uh, militias are supporting a transitional government which is committed to western ideals um, and institution building and um, the fact that they have just successfully held an election and are supporting a, uh, a transition government. And he talks about the challenges that still lie ahead for Libya, but says that um, with the support of the United States, Libya is um, now on the path of being the most successful country to emerge from the Arab Spring. And all it took was a little nudge, aka 3,000 airstrikes, and uh, the public execution of their former leader. Well, let's not forget, like, the social media disinformation campaigns leading up to that, right? Like, um, as far as I recall, and you can call me out if this is wrong, but weren't yeah. they um, one of the uh, actors in the Arab Spring that had those, like, sudden revolutions popped out because of social media banding together? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all right. So who the fuck was behind that shit? Ah, God, I hate, I hate the West so much, so deeply. Yeah, well, you have to wonder, right? Like, um, yeah. And when I say that, I mean like those people in institutional power are just such fucking demons, eh? You know? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, th- I think like the Arab Spring was definitely an organic movement, but there's no doubt that its um its impact or or size was propelled by a Western intervention. I'm sure. The social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook play massive roles in that. Um, and I, you can only imagine the amount of um, bots at play um, being generated by some fucking dweeb in a basement at the Pentagon. There's <laughs> <laughs> making 10,000 accounts per day, like just variations of, uh, of Muhammad's. Um, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, begging to overthrow the leaders. And... Yeah. and those same dissident groups that for this whole time leading up to the Arab Spring had been funded by the West would still have been active during those revolutions. You know, like to to assume that the Arab Spring was only like young, disenfranchised, sort of aged men. Yeah, revolutionaries yeah. that uh, that were just begging for westernization and like liberal reform. Mm. Like sure, there was a lot of that, but those guys can't push the needle far enough without the support of these groups who were reliant on Western funding. Yeah. I would imagine. Um, within the community I was hanging out in, where I allegedly, potentially met Gaddafi's doctor, there was a pretty wide consensus within that group that they were all, uh, you know, like Western actors uh, in there trying to stir up shit and destabilize the countries, you know, um, which maybe, maybe not. Uh, I don't think they'd even have to get people in there to do that. I think you could just kind of like flood a system with propaganda as we've talked about multiple yeah, times. Absolutely. This has happened multiple times that the CIA yeah. has like conducted programs in and, you know, tried to do in Cuba with the Cuban Twitter clone that they launched to specifically destabilize the government, which mm. is hilarious. I love... Uganda coming out and banning Twitter, by the way. 
like leading did up, you get to ban twitter uh leading up to the elections and twitter released a statement saying that a free and open internet is important to democracy oh get it was like far. just after the capital riots and a free and open <laughs> internet you're kidding me yeah so um they were trying to push uganda to like open up social media but leading up to them they just totally like clamped down on it hopefully we'll have the foresight to do the same i mean it's such a better system to just be like fucking can the whole thing you know yeah yeah it's that's genius i love it Mm. yeah fucking interesting predictions out of this now that oil is slowly becoming a less valuable resource and it's in decline um Mm. i wonder what the next uh sort of like big foreign interventions are going to be if it's like u.s troops going into uganda to um spread some twitter democracy you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is an interesting one yeah um that's a that's a really good question Mm. i feel as though like the low-hanging fruit in terms of these predictions might be like places with lithium reserves as we saw like the the recent u.s attempt to um undermine the results of uh bolivia's election Mm. in order to to gain access to their massive lithium reserves which is um a key component in uh batteries for storing renewable energy and running electric cars but i feel as though it's almost too obvious i think it'll be interesting to see what emerges um yeah so in contradiction to uh dirk vanderwell in his article after gaddafi the surprising success of the new libya a more recent and, uh, in my opinion, far more interesting and accurate article was written by this guy named uh, Matteo Capasso. And it's, the title of this one is called The War and the Economy, The Gradual Destruction of Libya. Yeah. And he introduces uh, what I thought was a really fascinating concept, which I had never heard of, which was he calls the accumulation by waste of capital by um, the West. And he draws the analogy between um, former colonial relations between the West, like obviously the creators of these colonial empires, which were built on extractive relationships of resources from their colonies to the um, sort of home states. The obvious example of this is slaves taken from Africa to the West. Mm. And he makes the argument that this is perpetuated now by the constant destabilization and waste of countries like Libya. And he, um, he contends that the extraction of oil from these places like Libya is far more uh, affordable and easy to do for the West when these countries are in states of disarray. And although it, right now Libya produces uh, not even a third of what it was pre-intervention or pre-revolution, Um, The oil that does come out of Libya is um, under the sort of control policy-wise of these Western-backed institutions. And another really interesting point that he makes is that when you have a constant flow of uh, either legal uh, immigrants or refugees leaving these failed states, you have what the media frames as a refugee crisis. But at the same time, you also have a reserve labor pool. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Nice. So yeah, yeah. When, when you have 2 million Arabs on the doorstep of Europe begging to be let in, suddenly when these Western powers decide that 
they they need them or they need a sort of um, demographic adrenaline shot in their states. They might need a cheaper workforce. They might need to um, diversify growth in certain parts of their country. They can actually just move these groups of people in. Mm. So they kind of lay waste to, <laughs> to their homeland as a way to like indirectly force these people out. Then you get to place the blame on the state that you laid waste to, as well as the refugees who are, you know, quote, illegally entering your country. And that way you get to hold them in reserve until you need them. Yeah. Oh, man, that's dark. Yeah, yeah it really is. Yeah. And another sort of, and the last point I'll make, um, which demonstrates this accumulation by waste, is the, the money that uh, Western exporters make from weapons sales to other states who have their proxy forces fighting in Libya or in support of Libyan forces. So um, Germany and Italy um, have recently made billions of dollars uh, exporting weapons to um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and other Gulf states who then in turn send those weapons to their proxy militias who are all contending for influence in Libya in order to obviously impose or sorry, establish a government favorable to those uh those powers so there's a lot happening um mm. and van der waal's prediction that uh libya will be a surprising success has been absolutely incorrect um the country has been in a in a state of turmoil and destruction for a decade now but there might be some promising news because uh recently a ceasefire between the main parties fighting for control of libya has been announced and the most recent iteration of a transitional government has been established. So we can cross our fingers that, you know, the violence in Libya might stop. But if it happens, it's almost certainly going to be um, on the terms of the West, which is a shame. Oh, God, how disgusting is that? And I think the problem is, is like, one of the best lessons I ever got was from an economics professor who I normally hold all economics professors in pretty low regard. But um, this one was... <laughs> personally my favorite shout out to you i forgot your name i'm sorry i will try and remember it in the future <laughs> um but she told me that um the most important thing to consider is like the context and culture for a successful government or system you know mm -hmm. and you can't just export bullshit institutions from the west and then just like even if you have the best of intentions even if you're not going there for the oil and you like legitimately believe democracy and uh you know, Western system, systems of government are going to be the best thing. You can't just take it and plop it down and just assume it's going to work. You know, it doesn't work like that. It's just that you have to understand yeah, no the way. nuances of the situation. And when you come from a background of, um, you know, not, you could call them totalitarian or dictators, but frankly, like people who work to unite a uh, fractured society, then you have to work with that. And I think that's like part of what these... Uh, Middle Eastern leaders are, and especially in like Southeast Asia, you get the same thing. We get guys like Lee Kuang Pyu and um, uh, I don't know the South Korean general. His name is escaping me, but he was another sort of like uh, you know could be considered That's... a dictator um, mm. and ran an authoritarian, totalitarian government, but it was really successful because it worked with yeah. the culture, you know. So exactly, and. Um... And I don't want to. I don't want to speak on behalf of these other cultures, but I would entertain the idea that in some of these cultures, you need a strong man, yeah. and that might be a, a widely accepted idea. You know, just as in the West, we we 
can't fathom the idea of anything but a representative democratic government. It might be that, you know, like the fucking Iraq wanted Saddam Hussein. And sure, like terrible things happen, but a lot of people look back at the Saddam Hussein era as the glory days. Yeah, I don't, better than now, right? Like, I don't think you can just, yeah. like, you know, and, and, oh man, something that, like, Tucker Carlson was saying about, um, uh, about the uh, Pakistani gender studies program as part of, like, the Biden bailout. Like, maybe mm -hmm. they don't want it. Maybe they don't want, like, the empowerment of the West because it's pretty shitty at the end of the day. Yeah, of course. Um, he was, he was, um... <laughs> suggesting that people in Pakistan would look at uh, the riots and the protests and the, the COVID deaths in the United States on the news and just be like, hmm, mm. yeah, Western ideals? No thanks. Yeah, yeah, um, well, exactly. Which is, I mean, who could blame them? Well, there's not... The whole, like, patting on the back that we've done a great job, I think, is pretty bullshit, you know? Like, I don't think we have. I don't think it's much better than any other country. Controversial I mean, opinion, it, but like... it's. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's better than a lot of countries in terms of uh, in terms of developmental sort of m measured outcomes, such as you know GDP or health or sure we're doing average life expectancy, literacy, but and it, it's only on the back of Western violence. Well, also those are Western um, indicators, so we're doing well yeah, by exactly, our own yeah. fucking jerk off metrics, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, everybody reads books that we give them as well as we want them to. But, like, man, I don't know. What, what makes a good life? You know? That's the question. Mm. What are you trying to even achieve with all of this shit? Like, everybody in a fucking office job, you know? Mm. A really interesting anecdote that I um, read about when I was uh, studying uh, international development mm. as a part of my degree was... And the... The location of this story eludes me because it was a long time ago, but in a traditional African village somewhere in Central Africa, this, uh, you know, Western aid organization started going to these remote areas and um, went into the village and said like, hey, we're here to help you out and we've got this well building program. So we're going to build a well like right in the middle of your village now. Mm. So uh, you're not going to have to walk the eight kilometers to the well and back every day to get your fresh water. How good is that? Um, and there was like a sort of uh, custom amongst the culture of the people in this, in this place where they, it was rude to, um, to deny offers of help because that was seen as sort of like a, a friendship or a way that you would build a relationship. And that if they were to, to reject the uh, offer of assistance from this aid organization, it would reflect poorly on themselves. So this well got built in the middle of this village. And then when this organization was doing like a, uh, a review of the program or an evaluation, um, they surveyed a lot of the women in the village. And the women who in these, in the, these cultures are often the water collectors um, were all complaining because the trips to the well and the the one or two hours that they had to spend walking every day to collect water was really important time that they would spend like consolidating uh, bonds between women and their tribe. So women would have time separate from the men of their tribe to discuss womanly or feminine issues. Um, they were like, and young girls would spend time with older women where the older woman would pass down advice and wisdom to younger girls about, you know, how to grow into a woman and the, what it's like to 
to play the role of a woman in this tribe. And this Western organization completely just disintegrated like this traditional institution amongst that culture um and it's it's the the arrogance of so much of this intervention is like astounding i hate it so fucking much um Mm. what i i grew up like reading this economist called jeffrey Sachs. i can't remember if i've talked about him on the pod or not but he was essentially uh the head of the or one of the main guys behind the millennium development projects which was this big goal to go into Africa and um, help bring them to, you know, uh, Western standards of living. Um, yeah. And part of that was this like multi-pronged approach of um, what he likened to surgical intervention into a, uh, you know, into an economy where they were oh, putting in surgical intervention. Even the idea, uh, the wording of that, even yeah. based on like Western science, is so fucking infuriating. Oh, Jeffrey Sachs like should be tried. I reckon he's such a pile <laughs> of shit. Um, but we'll get there. So he went in there and um, put all these uh, what they called the Millennium Development Villages, where there's like building lots of areas where they could, you know, uh, educate the population because they're fucking not western smart they're dumb and um they were going to start growing crops that made money as opposed to crops that they were growing already because you know after having lived there for centuries they're obviously too fucking dumb to be making money uh so they need to grow our crops um yeah and then followed with all these other fucking incredibly arrogant interventions um and Jeffrey, like the Millennium Development Villages, I think Jeffrey Sachs would have touted as a success under his own fucking hubris and uh, definitions of success, but like were also widely regarded to be a failure. And there's this really scathing fucking book. Um, I, God damn, I, I, I want to remember the name of it. I might, I'll do a Google search uh, for right now, um, just because it's so good. So... <laughs> There is a book written about him called The Idealist, and there's two yeah. podcasts I reckon people should listen to get like a fantastic fucking overview of this motherfucker. Um, and they're both on Econ Talk, which is uh, personally one of my favorite outside of, of course, Modern Guilt, um, one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, and so, Modern Guilt Econ Talk collab coming soon. Yeah, fucking a Ross Roberts as <laughs> a legend. So this this uh, journalist called Nina Monk wrote a book about Jeffrey Sachs's um, work in the in in Africa um, and described him as like a man who's you know like incredibly smart and driven and idealistic but also driven by like huge amounts of hubris because he has essentially just been you know propped up by institutions his entire life and told that he's doing like a fantastic job and blah 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 without having considering the fact that he's like, ruined countries that he's been like a direct policy advisor for um and part of what she describes is him flying into africa in this like fancy helicopter and landing to go like just basically give orders to people and then flies back out on the helicopter without even like fucking considering the people that he's um you know around and of course getting Mm -hmm. some nice pictures with uh with africans to bolster his image and whatnot oh of course gotta gotta chuck that on the the united (laughs) nations instagram (laughs) yeah 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 so it was just like 
yeah, I don't know. It was fucking ruthless. Uh, and Jeffrey Sachs ends up coming on. So Nina Monk goes on Econ Talk and gives like an account of all the shit that she saw going on and how like the crops had failed because um, they weren't cycling them properly. And then even the crops that they were trying to grow within those African villages um, weren't ripe for the soil. And also it like destroyed their traditional farming techniques and the education wasn't particularly useful within the context of the area, uh, you know, and it also like didn't help the whole, like the, it just basically flew in the fucking face of their entire culture and way of being. So Jeffrey Sachs ended up going on like Econ Talk shortly after to try and give a rebuttal that was just so fucking hilarious if you listen to the Nina Monk episode because it's just like filled with his cope his like desperate fucking cult, yeah right um to try and fucking you know deal with the deal with his failure as a economist but mm. i mean the, the tragedy is is it's, it's ultimately a joke on the fucking people who's trying to help you know because this guy doesn't fucking get it that that his institutions and his way of life um kind of suck ass like you know do you there's so much fucking arrogance to assume that people want to be the same as the West and to think that we have a good beyond absolutely, you you know, like, yeah, okay. We have these metrics that are ideal and I'm not gonna, well, not ideal, sorry, but you know, it's life expectancy being higher surely does sound like a good thing, but man, I would way rather be fucking chilling with my, we already had this chat, chilling with my bros in the fucking sweatshop than in a, office with a bunch of people that i hate suffering for 40 years of my life than living well for fucking 50 you know 40 years in the office 20 years on the fucking streets of jacana you know while the government just approves like 200 million dollars a year for anti-smoking campaigns to just rob you of your joy yeah yeah what fucking freedoms as well eh? oh the freedom of the west oh it's so free here fuck off do you know how fucking expensive it is to get a dairy Whereas I could be smoking yeah, like fucking, um, you know, Melbourne Reds for like a dollar a pack if I was back in Indo. Yeah. Bintangs. Bintangs. As far as the fucking eye can see. Viagra shots. <laughs> straight at the bar. You know? I could go buy Valium OTC in the fucking pharmacy. And as much pseudoephedrine to make my eyes fucking pop out of my skull. Whereas here, That's it's like living. I have to get a fucking prescription to get melatonin. What freedom do I have? You know? Yeah. Monday morning rants. <laughs> At least I have the freedom to vote for my party that won't get in. Yeah, thank fuck for that. <laughs> <laughs> the freedom to take out a mortgage that'll put you in 40 years of debt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Forcing you to be a, a, a wage laborer for the rest of your life. Yeah, thank fuck for that freedom that I love. Or, yeah. you know, all the institutional education that I have had to, like actively unlearn for years and years and years um that is like subsequently revealed itself to be complete bogus and bullshit like university being a productive career path um despite the fact that nobody's released the actual stats on that as like an eroding path for the bulk of people that go you know Mm. yeah there's so much arrogance it's one of those things that like um as you can tell by my uh emotional rant there um that drives me up the fucking wall because these motherfuckers sitting around you know getting paid 200 grand a year to show uh tell the rest of the world how good they have it and how good we have it in the west um who are just completely ignorant is is uh mind-boggling 
Yeah. And the, the more recent iteration of what you were describing with the Millennium Development Goals and now the, um, the United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So it's like the, <laughs> oh, you know, the, the revamped edition, but with um, climate responsibility in, like added. Yeah. Uh, so now it's like... Right, they really care um, about that. Yeah, now it's like aid organization, organizations not only go to Africa to tell them how to live their lives, but also how to be environmentally friendly. <sighs> As if they haven't been the stewards of their own environments for millennia already. Yeah. Um, and are now only dealing with the... the the environmental destruction of a uh, western fucking industry oh, um, yeah exactly so it's it's like um you know like they colonize a place strip it of all its wealth and resources and turn it into a wasteland yeah then give it independence and in order to help it develop you put a bunch of western factories yeah <laughs> there and then you realize that the pollution being caused by the factories pouring into the surrounding environment is uh, negatively impacting crop yields. So then you implement another program to fucking fix that. And it's like that fucking uh, children's song, like this old lady swallows a fly and then swallows the spider to eat the fly and then <laughs> swallows some other shit to eat the spider. It's a fucking joke. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so, that's hilarious. Yeah. You know, one of the things that always caught me off guard, I, I know, just... Um, this is probably be a stupid anecdote for a lot of you, but for, uh, at the time I was like, loved being up for 48 hours and you can take from that what you will. Um, but like, one of the things that always got me is like, I'd go to clubs there and there'd be these amazing four story high, like dens of hedonism that just, you know, earthly delights were, um, on every fucking floor and you could essentially just like, it just still blows my mind to the to this day that that sort of shit exists it's what i imagine like being in a roman orgy would have been like back in the day it's just like actual hedonistic pleasure and within them they'd be playing these videos of european clubs and you'd be sitting there thinking like bro <laughs> not european clubs sorry uh, i mean like western clubs like you know americans dancing around this club and i'd always think like buddy if you fucking knew how depressing it was back in a bar at home you just you don't know how fucking good you've got it like when i go out and i have it, i don't even go out here because it's so fucking shit but like you know, going out for a beer here where everybody's standing on like some sort of fucking year eight formal, you know, like woman on one side of the room and the men on the other. Um, nobody's like interacting and there's all these like restrictions on what you can do. It's just, yeah. <laughs> we should uh, yeah. do a reverse thing where we start bringing their culture over here. Yeah, make it more interesting. We really should, man. Yeah. And I mean, the the one of the great ironies of... um the whole Western development campaign or, um, you know, neo-colonialism is that we can't wait to, uh, to take stuff like exotic food back to the West. Yeah. We, um, we want to strip all of the best parts of their culture out, uh, import it to the West and think that um, they want us to do the same thing for them. Yeah, but they, they want to <laughs> fucking neuter it as well you know yeah like, straight up yeah uh water down the spices in the curry yeah you know? <laughs> butter chicken is like the ultimate metaphor for like um you know <laughs> taking taking beautiful culture and just like fucking pissing on it and turning it yeah. into like the butter chicken we have like the butter yeah. chicken of the fucking um you know of, of all those beautiful cultures and 
they get our fucking democracy. At least they didn't yeah. get our office jobs. That's coming next. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> fucking, they, do, they have worse versions of our office jobs even. Like, think about call centers in the Philippines, man, you know? Yeah. I hope they can at least smoke like, inside, though. To be like, <laughs> yeah. The moment they I take mean, that away, it's just gonna be like a true fucking dystopian nightmare. In in a some bleak fantasies that I've had, I've actually wondered if like working in a call center would be that bad. I know that sounds insane, but I sometimes like wonder if you could just like embrace the suffering I used to do and it, the monotony eh? and just like just resign yourself to the fact that like yeah man, I have to just come here and not think at all. Yeah. I have to just have a thing on and just basically plug into a machine for eight hours. Just like have two breaks, two smokos. I find it kind of fun, man. It's, it's, it's like nowhere near. Okay. So I've had like maybe 25, maybe, maybe 30 jobs, but probably around like mid 20. Like I've had a lot of fucking jobs and I'd have to say of the jobs I've worked, um, call center wasn't so bad. Like it was pretty funny. I worked with like a bunch of like super fucking, uh, like, bitchy men and women um who would just bitch to me like on smoko about just i don't know like the drama of their life which was always reasonably entertaining and <laughs> uh aside from that you just sit there and get like told to fuck off by half the phone calls and then get weird like emotional phone calls from the other ones and occasional people who are super stoked with you it's like an interesting slice of life i feel um yeah it would be one of the best movies i've seen was this 24-hour film uh, called Clock, I think it is, or Time, or Time Clock, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it was in, like, when I was living in Melbourne, I went to this art show, and they had this 24-hour movie um, that shows the exact time uh, matched to the time of the day, and it's just, like, a cut-up mm -hmm. of movies, and it's, it turns into this really interesting slice of life. You're getting, like, a in, like a, you know little cutscene into fucking every single person's life at that one particular moment. And people will pick up the phone and just like tell you exactly what's going on in their life. Like, I can't fucking talk now. My husband's cheating on me. My son's in trouble. And that bitch across the road has been letting her dog shit my fucking lawn again. All right? <laughs> so no, I don't have time for a survey. But what's it about? Oh, it's like, uh, fucking, uh, cancer, or, uh, you know, like, do you want to, like, donate to cancer or something? Oh, maybe we could chat for a little bit. Like, you know, it's really cool. You know, it's fucking more interesting than sitting around on Excel all day, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to talk about vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> on that fucking tangent um yeah sure so <laughs> while we're talking about western exceptionalism well this is funny you sent me an article uh written by global times china um i don't know yes. who they are but they that's chinese state media is it yeah it's good it was really yeah. entertaining to read um i couldn't yeah. see the article it's an opinion piece and it's just titled by global times so you know whatever and it starts off detailing the 23 elderly Norwegian people who died after receiving Pfizer vaccines. Um, 13 assessed and common side effects may have been contributed to severe reactions in them, according to Norwegian Medicines Agency. Um, I saw a, actually saw an article on Reuters um, that talks about the same thing. Um, so, you know, I don't know if Reuters falls under like general Western media, 
maybe maybe not they're like reasonably impartial most of the time i feel so whatever but essentially this was like a total fucking hit piece on the west it's hilarious it's like uh real fucking scathing the way that they attack um the west like let me try and find a um uh, quote. A lot of it was talking about like how the mRNA vaccine that Pfizer put out is relatively untested, and which it kind of is, and you know how it's putting a lot of people at risk. Um, but they're essentially betting on the fact that it's going to be better than a lot of the deaths that might occur from COVID. So you know it's a weird little bet that's going on. It might be a tried a catastrophic bet that's going on um, but they're also ignoring chinese vaccines that are um based on you know proven methods that have you know decades of research behind them so uh in terms of the covid19 vaccines chinese society and the chinese government have regarded science and objectivity as priorities in practical and realistic manner China has squarely faced the reality that Chinese vaccines lack sufficient data. Chinese COVID-19 vaccines have been put on the market but are conditional. Vaccine vaccination priority will be given to high exposure populations, yada, yada, yada. No senior Chinese official has come out to openly endorse Chinese vaccines. So I thought that, that was like reasonably interesting. Um, you know, I didn't realize they were being so sort of like cautious about the vaccines, which is quite cool because we're certainly mm. not doing that whatsoever. Watch Biden get his vaccine live yeah. uh, on Twitch. <laughs> Are they doing that? No, but I mean... Oh, that would be so... It, it sounds like <laughs> fucking they would. AOC and the squad live on Twitch answering your questions about the COVID-19 vaccine. It's like almost... It's not even funny because it's so fucking realistic. It's just, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, they go on like, however... The Pfizer vaccine has been strongly promoted by the U.S. administration and capital. Their potential risk has been deliberately downplayed by Western public opinion. And public opinion has created an impression that Pfizer's mRNA vaccine, which is being used for the first time, is safer than the Chinese vaccine. Regrettably, Washington has promoted China-U.S. confrontation, and the U.S. and its major allies have initiated their ideological frenzy. Is there any justice? They believe it is right to suppress China and wrong to be fair to China. It's like being back at the call center. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I found this sort of stuff interesting because uh, last year I was studying, um, I was doing an economic master's thesis on clinical trials and whatnot. So I was thinking, oh, okay, that's a reasonably interesting article. It's funny to see China coming out and writing bitchy hit pieces on the West, which frankly, um, we need more of. Uh, all the time because they're just such fucking good reads, you know. Um, and I was like, I'll look into the clinical trials and see what sort of data is there, um, you know, because I'd be interested to take what I've fucking studied and see if there's any application. So I couldn't find any real results on the like FDA's website. So normally, like, you know, something goes through a phase one, phase two, phase three trial. Um, and each of those are for different things. The phase one is effectively to just make sure that it like doesn't kill rats, I think, or it might be tested in people, but it's like, you're essentially just checking, um, that there's some reaction of some kind and the thing actually will work compared to placebo. And then phase two is to make sure it's like not gonna 
fucking you know like kill people the moment it has it so it's like a really small population and then phase three is uh, more about efficacy against previous drugs so you're making sure that it's better than alternatives which is kind of like irrelevant i guess it, you know you could measure it in comparison to existing treatments for covid19 um to make sure it's better than them but i don't really mm-hmm. know how they do it so the fda hasn't actually approved anything but they've cleared it for emergency use so for the next two years, they're going to be actually studying it. And then the FDA would probably approve it, provided it passes. It's like, you know, presumed, uh, you know, requirements for getting efficacy. And I would say the FDA is reasonably legit. Um, they don't really fuck around when it comes to this sort of thing and have so far been somewhat ideologically uh, neutral, I would say, mm-hmm. personally, just from yeah. what I've seen. Um, but the actual, uh, journal article where they tout their evidence for the Pfizer vaccine was like pretty fucking like shitty, I reckon it, um, after reading it, I'll just try and bring it up. I actually had it up in full. Um, we can link it and people can also make their own conclusion, but the whole 95% vaccine efficacy statement that you'll see thrown around everywhere um from what i read and please weigh in if i'm wrong i'm sure i am because i'm don't fucking care enough to read this deeply because i'm frankly not really interested in taking it for two years anyway um you know uh is the 95 percent efficacy thing comes from the fact that like eight people who had the vaccine developed COVID 19 after getting the vaccine and 160 people who were on placebo got COVID-19 after. And, and that's where it comes from, which I found a little fucking weird that, you know. Can you explain that again, sorry? So when they're trying to measure efficacy and they're trying to say like how, like does this shit actually work? Um, the metric that they're using is how many people develop COVID-19 symptoms after getting the vaccine. Um, so, cause I wasn't sure how they did this. I was thinking like, oh, did they like get the vaccine and then expose everyone to COVID-19 and see how they like react to it or something? Or, you know, I don't, I don't know how they would do it. And I don't know what standard vaccine clinical trials would also be like, but, um, what they said is that among, so they gave two doses of the vaccine to everyone, um, and two doses of placebo to everyone as well. Um, I don't know if it was like a 50-50 split between who was doing it, but it was probably something close to that. And the people who had the placebo, seven days after they were given it, 169 of them, so this is 45,000 people split in two. Uh-huh. Half of them got the vaccine, half of them got the placebo. 169 people who got the placebo, seven days after placebo, got COVID-19. Yeah. Eight people who had the vaccine got COVID-19. Therefore, they're saying it's 95% effective against COVID-19, which seems like a weird extrapolation there, There's so much room for variation, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? Because, like... Like, It depends on the lifestyle of those people, where they commute to, who they come into contact with. Yeah. All that kind of shit that would determine whether or not you would get COVID. Yeah, exactly. So, when I read that, I was thinking, like, what? That's a little flaky. Um, one of the fascinating things about clinical trials is they are all pretty flaky. Like there are mm. way less set in stone, um, than you think they are. 
you know, and just because the like horrendousness of actually trying to test a drug is is really difficult. It's not as straightforward as like take a pill and then your symptoms are gone and then we're going to say this is good because every single person has a unique reaction to something. You know, like if you give uh, 200,000 people in the population a carrot, one of them might die of anaphylactic shock or something. Mm, you know, yeah, one of them exactly. might choke on it. One of them might um, take the carrot and then uh, develop cancer within two years. And it's not actually very straight. So a lot of what they do is they look at like, you know, uh, compared to the normal population and incidences of cancer, choking, uh, whatever, death, um, what is, is it higher within the people that got the vaccine or the drug or the carrot? Or is it lower compared to it? Um, and that's also part of like how they measure up against it. But that data isn't actually released as far as I'm aware. So they have like adverse events at the moment, which is like people got tired, people, some people have an anaphylactic shock, which is always going to happen. Um, it's just normal when you expose people to, you know, shit. They're just, some people are always going to have a weird reaction to it. Um, mm. But the longer term adverse effects is the more interesting stuff. So this happened very recently. And it was one of the things that I was actually going to be studying um, as part of this thesis that I dropped out of because I didn't want to do it in the end. Um, <laughs> but it was to do with the dengue fever vaccine called Dengvaxia, I think is how you pronounce it. And it was, it was within the Philippines, a Dengvaxia is essentially a vaccine to treat dengue fever, um, that has since gone on and got FDA approval, but it like also potentially may have killed like 600 people in the Philippines and they've banned it now in the Philippines. Ooh. Yeah, so the dengue fever virus works by, you know, it, like it fucks a lot of people up. You get it from a mosquito. Um, they call it like break bone fever and you're effectively like laid out for two weeks. Um, it doesn't actually have a high incidence of death. I think it's like pretty low. It's like 0. 0.0003 or something like that. Um, so, you know, 0. 0.03% or something is the number of people that die from it or it might be lower than that it's, it's basically like more likely to fuck you up as opposed to actually kill you um yeah but people who get it so if you get it the first time you generally you know you're okay if you get it the second time then you can have this massive reaction to the dengue fever virus and die subsequently because your body goes into like a um basically freaks out and over produces uh antibodies against it and then you know shuts down afterwards and that's part of what was happening with this vaccine is that people who had received one dose of the vaccine had developed antibodies against it and then when they got the virus their body freaked the fuck out and had like a horrendous reaction to the dengue fever vaccine and then died which led to so many people dying you know and it's one of those things that the um, uh, Science Mag and NPR of all people, which is, you know, you know, this was pre-COVID because there's no way NPR would run this fucking story now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but NPR released this thing talking about it. This rush to produce and sell the vaccine within the Philippines um, had led to a lot of people dying. Um, so they say, 
you know, within this, I think they say directly can be attributable to the vaccine is 195 kids, but potentially more people. And the um, health minister in charge had resigned over the controversy because it was so intense. Um, and a lot of it is to do with the fact that there is just real pressure to release the fucking vaccine, despite that there um, was concern within the medical community that releasing it too fast might, you know, be jumping the gun a little bit and we might not see like some of the more severe reactions that could happen within it. Yeah, man. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah. So would I buy puts on Pfizer? Because, you know, the only thing worth considering is whether or not you're going to like bet against this or whether you're going to buy it. Um, mm. I don't I know. I would still say no because like, like even though that uh global times article is chinese state media they make a great point that like vaccines have been turned into political weapons now so like for the same reason the the west uh you know wouldn't entertain the idea of using uh sinovac the chinese vaccine or uh sputnik 5 the russian vaccine um it's the same reason that they won't stop using pfizer i'd imagine um they're not gonna undermine their own uh projects well pfizer's so um, big as well you know like they're not some mm. fucking if if there is a biotech company and there is and you if you are a uh, patreon subscriber you'll hear more about it if there's a biotech company that's betting on a vaccine at the moment entirely and that's like their main thing um and they're trying to rush it to get across the line it's a risky bet and you're effectively gonna be betting on one i think the fact that Pfizer won't be able to meet its supply to get the vaccine out Two, the fact that the Pfizer vaccine might be like really bad. Cause you're right. Like if we think about um, the incidence of bad reactions here, it would have to be pretty widespread to cut through the fucking political bullshit that we're seeing right now. You know, like a lot of people dying yeah. and attributable to the vaccine. If like, absolutely, you know, even 1% of everybody suddenly develops I don't know, like a chronic fatigue syndrome or uh, adverse reactions to some other virus off the back of this or something. Um, that wouldn't be enough almost to fucking break through the bullshit that we're seeing right now, you know, without getting labeled an anti-vaxxer and um, alt-right supporter or whatever the fuck else they're throwing at people questioning, you know. Hmm. It's quite interesting, uh, the idea of like a vaccine passport that's being floated around now, right? Yeah. So like Australia and Europe, I know, are definitely considering implementing something like that. So like you will need to pro- provide evidence that you've had a vaccine to be able to travel now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what sort of uh, price people will place on their ability to travel regardless of their suspicion yeah well that's it really um and where this whole vaccine debate is going to get into uh the world health organization was part of was the main body pushing the denvaxia vaccine into uh the philippines yeah right. <laughs> a vaccine panel at the world health organization concluded in 2016 that denvaxia was safe for children nine or under despite concerns from people within the Filipino health community against the Denvaxia um, vaccine. Uh, once again, you know, showing us f- just uh, fuck the World Health Organization, you know. 
um, who now recommends the vaccine can only be used after a test to be made sure that the children has had at least one brush with dengue first. Um, speaking of the WHO, I um, just came across an article as I was uh, sort of like half uh, consciously scrolling. A catastrophic moral failure. WHO chief condemns vaccine rollout. Director General Tedros Andanom Ghebreyesus kicked off the uh, kicked off WHO's week-long executive board meeting virtually from its headquarters in Geneva by lamenting that one poor country received a mere 25 vaccine doses while over 39 million doses have been administered in nearly 50 richer nations. So um, Guinea uh, in West Africa has only received 25 doses and uh, the WHO are having a big cry about it from their uh, virtual headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, <laughs> where I bet they've all had vaccines. Can they get fucked? I'm so, I hope <laughs> that they just fade into irrelevance like they should have done on Inception. Um, oh, well, fuck them. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how all this comes together, right? Like, I can't imagine that, but I don't know. There, there, there might be adverse events that might not be. You don't know. That's the thing. You don't know until the shit's like fucking out, until it's been tested, until mm. people have like gone and lived and experienced what it's like to, you know, encountered other pathogens. And exactly. And until then, yeah. it's just kind of like, well, yeah, you know, the shit's risky. And there have been cases where, you know, and that might be particular to dengue fever, but again, you don't know. So, you know, uh, hold Pfizer, uh, not, not a sell rating, you know, not a buy either. <laughs> so... For our listeners, if you are interested in hearing a little bit more about one particular um, biotech company in the United States that goes by the name of Oxygen, who may or may not have a stake in this vaccine scenario, you should subscribe to our Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash modern guilt, you can subscribe to um, our exclusive monthly podcasts where we will be doing uh monthly deep dives on stocks that for one reason or other are hot on people's lips at the moment um and we'll be we'll be researching the stock ourselves as well as getting our head around research done by others and then trying to provide a really very detailed overview uh including our own personal positions on it so that's five US dollars a month uh, to support the podcast and get some exclusive content. Mm. If you subscribe as well, then we'll offer the opportunity to, to make suggestions for, um, for stocks that you'd like us to do a deep dive into as well. So that, you know, if, if you've got questions or thoughts about a particular stock, then you can throw it our way and we'll, um, we'll weigh it up and give it back to you. So Dope. we can wrap this up for today. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Please, if you uh, want another way to, to support us, um, follow us on Instagram at Modern Guilt Pod. Follow us on Twitter, guilt underscore modern, or email us modernguiltpod at gmail.com. That's us for today. We will be dropping another episode next week as well as our um, exclusive Patreon episode on oxygen. So take care. I hope you learned something. We're done. Bye. Peace.